0: I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter one, and if you want to get a head start on us, uh, where we're going to be going next, turn to First John chapter five, too, if you will. John chapter one and First John chapter five. We'll start in the first chapter of John in the, the first verse. Now, while you're turning, let me remind you that John wrote. Both the gospel that bears his name and the, uh, the epistle, the letters to the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, when he was uh, a very old man. Uh, dates for Bible books are, are a little sketchy. Uh, we usually have ranges for things rather than specific dates. But, uh, but we know that John lived uh, to almost 100 A.D. So the time that he would have written these uh, these letters, the gospel, of John and the, the first, second, third John. Uh, he would probably have been in about his 90s. Um, it's one thing for sure we know is that it was about 60 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. All of the other Bible, the books of the Bible, the New Testament books had been written with the exception of Revelation. He writes that a couple of years after he writes these. He meaning John. Um, so uh, all the other Gospels are out there. Everybody knows what uh, Matthew wrote, what Mark wrote, and what Luke wrote. And John seems to be, in, in my opinion, seems to be tying up some loose ends and sharing some things that the others don't share. And so as a result, he doesn't start off like Matthew or, or Luke does with genealogies and, and uh, who begat who and all that kind of stuff. He starts off in chapter 1, verse 1. and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's saying Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was the word. He goes on to say the word made flesh, and he says Jesus was the creating agent of the Godhead. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. I want you to focus on verse 5 for a moment. The light shined in the darkness. Now, the light is talking about is Jesus. He said specifically in uh, John chapter 9, John writes and tells us about how Jesus was talking to the uh, disciples and those that were present. He talked about himself being the light of the world. The time was coming where he was not going to be able to work any longer, but as long as he was in the world, he was the light of the world. He was here to do the works of the Father. So we know that he's talking about the light being Jesus, where it says, The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. We read that to, to, to mean uh, the light shined in the darkness and the darkness didn't understand him. Now, certainly there was a lot of misunderstanding about Jesus, who he was and what he was here and why he was doing what he was doing and so forth. Still is today. But that's not what the word comprehend means. Where it said the darkness comprehended it not, it literally means it's a combination of a couple of Greek words. And basically it means the darkness was not able to bring the light under its domain. It was not able to control it. It was not able to conquer it. It was not able to withstand it. So it said the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness was not able to withstand the light. Light is always greater than darkness. Now, Jesus, in speaking to, the, to his disciples, and therefore you and me, said, because they were disciples, we understand that to mean, of course, his disciples on the earth couldn't be saved until after he went to the cross. Nobody can. So being disciples of Jesus made them his followers. We are his followers when we accept his personal sacrifice, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and make him our Lord and Savior. And as a result, Jesus says to his disciples, those who are born again, he says that we are the light of the world. Now, folks, I want you to focus on that for just a moment and understand what the Bible is really trying to get across. The life of God that's in you because of Jesus cannot be withstood by darkness. Now that's totally foreign and a foreign concept to what most Christians think. Most Christians, and I hope you're not one of them, but a lot of Christians would hear this and would sit there and think, well, that's not true for me because the devil's beating me up all over the place. But the Bible says specifically, the Holy Ghost is telling us that the darkness cannot withstand the light. The darkness cannot withstand the light. Now, turn with me over to 1 John chapter 5. John, writing something very similar, inspired by the Holy Ghost. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, he writes, For whatsoever, literally whosoever, is born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, the word overcometh is the Greek word nikos, don't know if I'm saying it right, but it's N-I-K-O-S, and it literally means to conquer. He that is born of God conquers the world, conquers the world. It's used as, a, as a, an illustration of um, victory in an ath- athletic competition. You may be aware of the, um, uh, the sports company Nike. That's where this comes from, from the Greek word nikos. It literally tells us that when you start walking by faith, you're entering into a real-life competition. Whether you know you're in it or not, there is a real-life battle. There is a striving for the mastery. There is a striving for victory, a victory that can be, can be achieved, can be attained. Because whosoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world – Even our faith. The word nikos literally tells us that we are the ultimate champions. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul speaking of some of these very same things by the Holy Ghost. He talks about some things that um, we experience in life. And it says in verse 37, Nay, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now I want you to look at the more than conquerors phrase for a moment. It's a Greek word that join it's a combination of two Greek words. One of them is Nikos that we just looked at over in first John chapter five, verse four. The other is hooper, H U P E R. He makes up a word and says hooper Nikos. Now hooper is a word that we get two of our words English words from one is hyper which we use to talking about something extreme, and the other is super. And we use super in any number of ways, but literally it means this. From the Greek, it literally means this. It means something that is superior, higher, better, more than a match for, utmost, paramount, or foremost. It means to be first-rate, first-class, top-notch, unsurpassed, unequaled, and unrivaled by any person or thing. Paul says you are a Hooper con- conqueror. It dramatizes your victory. It amplifies your victory. It means you're greater conquerors, superior conquerors, higher and better conquerors, more than any match. For any adversary or foe, we are ultimate conquerors, paramount conquerors, foremost conquerors, first-rate conquerors, first-class conquerors, top-notch conquerors, unsurpassed conquerors, unequaled and unrivaled conquerors. And that's what more than means. Again, the word conqueror is the word nikos. It describes an overcomer, a champion, a victor, or a master. By calling us more than conquerors. And really there's another meaning to the, to the more than conquerors that doesn't show forth in the, uh, uh, the concordance, but it comes out in the the use, the Greek usage. And it means way beyond measure, way beyond measure. When Paul uses more than in, in the, the few times that he does, it's either five or six times that he uses more than something re- referring to God. It literally means this. It carries the meaning that there shouldn't be a comparison between these two. One is so much greater than the other. You shouldn't even be able to compare them. It's, it'd be like saying God is greater than the devil. Well, duh. You really shouldn't even have to say that. You re, it's, not a, it's not proper and appropriate to even compare their power. That's what more than means. It's way beyond. Way beyond. It means way over the top. And he says you are more than conquerors. You're way more than just a conqueror. It's beyond measure. You're a super conqueror because of the life of God that's in you. So in 1 John 5, 4, when John says, uses the word Nykos to describe our superior position as children of God, he's talking about our victory and our position over the world. He says specifically that you have a victory that overcomes the world. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. The word world is the Greek word cosmos. It means an order of arrangement. It literally is talking about the world systems. Now, the devil uses the world systems to attack you. The devil uses the world systems to attack the church. Just like God uses the church, his body, and the children of God to work his works, the devil uses the world system And his children, those that are unsaved, unbelievers, to work against or contrary to the purposes of God. Now, the systems, the world systems, the order of arrangement of the world, we can see very clearly there's an educational system. Guess who's running that? There's a political system. Guess who's running that? There's a scientific system, an order of arrangement where science is concerned, the discovery and the the research the world and how it was made and and how it works and so forth guess who's running that all these systems are the means and the methods that the devil uses to attack god and his purposes but you because you're born of god according to the word overcome the world the systems of the world the systems of the world You overcome the world's systems because that's what the devil uses against you. Folks, Jesus really meant what he said when he says you're in the world, but you're not of it. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, I trust that you know this verse before we without having to turn there. It talks about the devil being the God of this world. That's a different word for world. It's not the word cosmos. I don't know how you say it. It's the Greek word A-I-O-N-A, I believe. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it means generation. So it says Satan is the god of this generation. But we think of generations as being periods of time. Well, it didn't I mean it's not like the devil's the god of this generation, but he was not the god of my father's generation, or my grandfather's generation, or my great grandfather's generation. What generation is he talking about? It goes further than just time. It's talking about the thinking the attitudes, the maxims of this world. The devil controls the world's systems by controlling the thinking and the minds of the world. The political system is the way that it is because of the thinking of man. The scientific system is the way that it is because of the thinking of man. The educational system is the way that it is because of man's thoughts. And where the Bible says that Satan is a master, he's the God of this world, it says that he exercises his influence over the world's systems by controlling the thoughts and the minds of people. See, so it's not like you go to bed at night and the devil pops out of the closet and starts attacking you. No, he attacks you through the wrong thinking of the world that influences its systems. That's why Paul went forward so far as to say that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He understood that the devil works through the systems of, of the world by influencing man's thoughts and attitudes. So whatever your problem is with the devil, whatever your problem is in life, it's not a problem with man. It's a problem with the influence that the devil may be having over men or women through the operation of the world's systems. That's what he's saying. It's telling us that these are the primary vehicles through which Satan works. These meaning the the world systems. Now, why is this so important? Because Satan will try to use the world around you to oppose anything that you're supposed to do. It's not personal, folks. Somebody once said, with one small exception, everything in the world is not about you. But that's the way, exactly the way we take it. We take it as it is about us. If the devil is waging war against us, if he's trying to hinder us or stand against us in some way or another, we think it's all about us. It's not. It's about stopping the victory that, you're, that you do have and are supposed to exercise because you're born of God. Think about that. Mean, what that means. It means that we have a faith that overrides and supersedes every organization, event, circumstance, or situation that arises here in this world. In other words, the devil, is, the devil is on notice, and you should be too, that what you already have is more than enough to handle anything and everything he can throw at you. How many Christians do you know that want more of something They want more power. They want more faith. They want more whatever so that they can overcome in life. That's exactly the point that the Bible is trying to make. You've got everything you're ever going to need. It's not a matter of having something extra. It's a matter of using what you have. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Put that into context that we know of as... uh, Regarding the early church. Think about if we lived in the days of the early church. And the Bible says, it, it's fascinating to me how that Paul talked about our days being the days of perilous times, perilous days. Now, he writes this to people that are being persecuted, killed, and hounded and imprisoned because of their faith in, in the Lord. But he says, our days are going to be perilous. The early days of the church. They were fighting a governmental system, demonized dictators that were willing to throw Christians in jail, throw them to the Lions and the gladiator games and, or the, the games at the Colosseum and the Roman games and so forth. They were up against everything, the strongest power, meaning Rome, the nation of Rome. They were up against the strongest power that the world had ever seen. And they were being told that they had victory over the world system. Well, folks, it took a while for that light to show through the darkness. But Rome is gone. And the church still stands. It took several centuries, but literally their faith overcame the political system of their day. Regardless of what the early believers felt or saw. The apostle John told him whatsoever, literally whosoever is born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. This could be translated this way. You've got a faith, a victory that overcomes masters and champions itself, even over the order of things found in the world. In other words, John was saying there's nothing your faith can't handle. Darkness tried to prevail against the early church, but couldn't. Just like darkness tries to prevail against you and me. But through faith, it cannot. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 18, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. And he says this. I'm going to read it to you. I don't care if you turn there or not. Feel free if you want to, but we're not going to stay there but just a moment. First Thessalonians 2, verse 18, Paul writes to the church and he says, Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul. Once and again, I wanted to come to you. But Satan hindered us. But Satan hindered us. See, you start talking about being more than conquerors, super conquerors, and and top-notch and all this kind of stuff, and Christians will get excited for about five seconds. And then they'll come back to reality and say, yeah, but if I'm such a conqueror, why am I having this trouble in life? Well, the guy that wrote by the Holy Ghost that we were more than conquerors made up a word, hooper-conqueror, had some things that hindered him too. He said that he wanted to come to Thessalonica time and time again, but Satan hindered him. Now stop and think about what that means. That means the things that Paul had in his heart were hindered by the devil. Now what does hindered mean? Well, hindered is a, a Greek word that carries a Uh, a picture, a word picture of destroying a road. If you're on a journey and all of a sudden the road is destroyed in front of you, then that, that destruction is a hindrance. It makes your journey impossible to complete. Now, if the word picture that you've got in your mind is that you're walking down a country road and the road's destroyed in front of you, you just walk around the hole and keep going. But that's not the picture that's supposed to be considered here. It's something that makes a delay or an impasse to such a degree that even if you can't overcome it, it's going to take you a long time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money that could be used for other things. And, folks, this is the very thing that the devil tries to do, whether through the systems of the world or the influence of man's thinkings, maybe even the influence of his thoughts upon you, that will stop you. Paul never would let anything stop him. Now we look at people like Paul and and maybe his situation is an example and we think, yeah, well, if we had the strength of Paul, then we'd be able to do that. Where do you think Paul got it? Where do you think Paul got the strength that he had to never be stopped? Jesus didn't appear to him unlike you, and say all of a sudden, well, you've got a special work to do, so I'm going to give you extra. Paul could have missed it. Paul could have failed. Paul could have quit just as easy as you and I could, can or could. But there was one thing that made Paul different than most Christians. He made the decision that because he knew what God wanted him to do, he wouldn't let anything stop him. There were a lot of things that, Paul, that didn't work out the way Paul wanted them to. For example, in Ephesus, he spent three and a half years in Ephesus, had the greatest ministry success of anywhere that he was. He had a revival that reached a continent. He had the largest church and established the largest church in all of Asia. It was a church that influenced other people. There was a Bible school that sent out missionaries that started other churches themselves. And he was run out of town. After three years, there was a riot. And the Romans, even though they knew Paul wasn't at fault, because the business people in town were rising up and saying Paul's beliefs are cutting into our business and our profits, therefore they wanted to kill him. And the Romans very simply told him, We can't guarantee your safety. So you've got to leave town. They couldn't legally make him leave because he was a Roman citizen. But when they knew that they could not ensure safety, he had no choice but to go. Paul couldn't return to Ephesus. Now, he could have sat down on the side of the road on the edge of town and cried and said, Lord, I don't know why this is happening to me. I spent three years here doing what you wanted me to do. This is not my fault. These stupid idol worshipers have raised up a stink. He could have sat there and said, Lord, I thought I was more than a conqueror. Lord, I even made up a word for you. At the direction of the Holy Ghost, I told believers that we were super conquerors. Here I am, run out of town. What did he do? He went about his business, folks. And when the time came for him to return to the, to the region of Ephesus, he overcame the work of the devil. He went down to Miletus several miles down the road and called the elders to him. Paul always found a way around the devil's hindrances. Always. I'm so amazed by so many Christians that are willing to give up because they've run into some trouble. Like it should be a surprise that we run into trouble. Well, people in the world don't have this kind of problem. Well, why in the world would the devil want to hinder other people that are are already under his control? Why would he want to hinder people that aren't trying to obey God? Of course, it's easier not to be saved. But the long-term result is a little different. Turn with me over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's look at Paul for a minute. Let's see what a super conqueror looks like. Paul's writing about himself to the church at uh, at Corinth. It's unfortunate from his position, but fortunate from ours, that the church at Corinth was such a bunch of jerks. Because if they had not been, if they had not resisted Paul's teaching, his relationship with them and his apostleship to them, then we would never have gotten the information that we got about some of Paul's life and ministry. Paul, after having founded the church, after having stated that if I'm an apostle to anybody, it's to you, now has to justify and reestablish or attempt to reestablish credibility with them through his life experience. So he starts off in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. Now, the reason he's speaking as a fool, as is translated by the King James, is because the fools are the ones that the church at Corinth are listening to. The ones that are coming in telling the, the people about how great they are and about how wonderful a ministry they have. Paul says, Well, I've never done that with you before, but if that's what it takes to reach you, okay, I'll play their game. So are they ministers of Christ? By their own standards, I'm much more. In labors more abundant. Now, the word he used for labors here is KOPOS, K-O-P-O-S. In the Greek, it literally means the hardest, most physical kind of labor. In other words, Paul is saying, I worked harder than you can possibly comprehend. In stripes, above measure, the word stripes means to smite, to hit, to wound, or to violently strike. Above measure, again, means way over the top. In other words, Paul is saying, I was beaten, much more so than you can possibly imagine. In prisons more frequent, folks even jail would not stop this guy. Now don't think of the, the Orange County Jail or some federal penitentiary that you see pictures of on, on the um, the news or whatever. These were holes in the ground. These were dark, damp, dreary places. he says, I was in prison more often than anybody you're listening to because they say they're a great minister. And deaths often. Now, Paul frequently talked about death. We tend to spiritualize it, but the reality is Paul faced death every day. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 31, he said, I die daily. And what he literally means is, I am constantly facing the prospect of death. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. That means 39 stripes. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 2 and 3, uh, the Old Testament law provides for the beating of somebody that's when it's appropriate. And that's where the, the Jews came up with their understanding it was a law for them that you could only hit somebody 39 times. But now the Jewish beatings had taken on the characteristics of the Roman beatings. If we can only strike somebody 39 times, now the Romans had no law. They could hit somebody until they died. But the Jews had come up with the thinking and the understanding that if we can only hit somebody 39 times, why don't we take a lesson from the Romans because they really know what they're doing. And there's a lot of historical evidence of what Roman beatings were like. They used what was called a flagellum, which was three cords tied together at the bottom, loose at the top. They would put pieces of bone and chip and sometimes little pieces of metal, stones, something like that, embedded in these these, uh, cords. And they would beat people. And it wouldn't be something like we see. The only thing I've ever seen as far as a beating was concerned is cowboy movies where the good guy would somewhere along the way get bull whipped, you know. And you see these red marks that you could count across his back and stuff like that. That's not what the the ancient beatings were like. These pieces of bone and stone and, and iron and whatever they would put in there would be embedded into the backs or sometimes the faces. Of the person being beaten. And when it would be yanked back, it would take out chunks of flesh. Now, think about Paul. Paul's talking about it from a personal experience. He said, Five times I received 39 stripes from the Romans. What do you think Paul's back looked like? What do you think his face looked like? Now, these 39 stripes, there's three cords. So, it's not like one mark per swing. It's three marks per swing. And so, with this flagellum, this Roman flagellum that the Jews incorporated into their beatings and victimization of those that deserved it, Paul is saying, I've received 585 stripes, I've had 585 contacts with my flesh. ...from the Jews' beatings. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. We know of want ads and... ...things that people put in classifieds about uh, looking for jobs... ...or looking for people to fill jobs and stuff like that. How would you summarize what Paul is saying he's experienced in ministry? Minister wanted. Must expect to be beaten thrown in jail, and work harder than you could possibly imagine. No pay guaranteed. Spiritual benefits only. Who would sign up for this stuff? you got to be pretty sold out. you got to be pretty convinced that this is what God wants you to do. Can you imagine most ministers running into Paul's problems the first time he ran into them? If Paul had not been the kind of guy that he was, and he didn't have to be, he chose to be. If Paul was not the kind of committed person that he was, do you realize how the gospel would have been hindered? And on the other side of the coin, can you realize that the devil, from the devil's perspective, how the devil is trying to hinder the gospel by trying to create problems for Paul? Yet time after time after time the devil throws his stuff up against Paul, and he's left to conclude that nothing stops this guy. So what does he do? Give up? No, he pours it on. Verse twenty five. Thrice, three times was I beaten with rods. Now beating of rod with rods was a, a common experience at that that time for criminals. For enemies of the state, what they would do is they would tie a person's legs together. Many times, most of the time, they would raise them up in the air where they're hanging upside down. And the, the lictor, the person that was doing the beating, the Roman lictor, would take these long rods. They were sometimes 10 or 12 feet long. Long enough where you could get a good whip to it. And they would stand back and there was no limit to how how much or how long they could do it, they could do it until they wore out. And so they'd stand back and they would whip this rod down into the bottom of somebody's feet. Time after time after time after time after time. Now the historical evidence of these things is that many times it would cripple people, break bones in their feet so that they could never walk again. Or if they ever did walk, It would be greatly impaired. Their walking would be greatly impaired. That's going to become important with some of the rest of what Paul tells us. So Paul says this happened to him three times. Then he says, once I was stoned. We know of that in Acts chapter 14. Now the stoning tells us uh, the uh, account of the stoning in Acts 14. Tells us about how the Jews came from a certain nearby town that Paul had just left preaching the gospel, getting somebody healed. And the Jews came back from, came from that town and followed him to the next town he went to. And they raised up a a riot against him and they stoned him. And the Bible specifically says, supposing that he had been dead. Now something caused them, those who were familiar with stoning, familiar with the Rules regarding stoning. Something caused them to suppose that he was dead. I personally believe he was. Everybody's trying to have the killing blow. Stoning was not intended to just hurt somebody. Wasn't intended to chase them out of town. It was intended to kill them. So everybody's aiming for the head looking for the final blow. That would end his life. And they thought they'd accomplished that. I believe they did. But the Bible says when the believers, after the stoners left, the believers gathered together. doesn't say they prayed. It just says they gathered together around Paul and then Paul revived. I believe they did pray. Although the Bible doesn't say so. But Paul was raised up. Now whether he was dead or near death or whatever you could very easily see that that would not be a pleasant experience. But that didn't stop him. What did he do? He returned back to the very same city that the stoners came from and showed them that he was alive and still preaching the gospel. Now, tell me anywhere along the way that you want to where modern-day preachers would have quit. I mean, somebody somewhere has got to be have whispered in their ear from the devil, you know, if God was really with you, you wouldn't be having this trouble. Now, Paul, this faith stuff is okay, but let's use wisdom. I love that one. Wisdom is usually used in that context, at least in my experience, people talking about it to me is usually used in that context as, as an excuse to doubt, to give up. Next, Paul says, Thrice I suffered shipwreck. Now, we only know of one in Acts chapter 27 and 28. We know of the shipwreck experience where he was on board in the middle of the storm, the worst storm that the, the sailors had ever experienced, and they sailed for a living. Everybody on board had given up hope. The angel of the Lord appears unto Paul. It says, here's how it's going to be. You're going to be shipwrecked, cast into the ocean, but you'll come upon a little island. And I've given, them, given you all them that sail with you. So Paul goes from being a prisoner on the ship to being in charge, saying, the angel appeared to me. Everything's going to be all right. You guys go ahead and eat again. The storm was so great that even sailors couldn't eat and hadn't eaten for a couple of weeks. Folks, that's a serious storm. That's a hooper storm. We know that Paul is shipwrecked. He keeps everybody together. The the sailors want to abandon ship and so forth. But he talks to the captain of the ship and says if they leave, they're going to die. He winds up being in charge. They're cast up on the island of Melania. And Paul has a revival and gets people healed. In the process or part of the process, really, he gathers sticks to put into fire. The snake comes out of the sticks that he has in his hand and bites him. Venomous snake, snake, venomous viper. Everybody looks at him and says, well, justice is served. He must be such a criminal that now even though he was spared from the the, uh, death in in the water, look now at what's going on with him. But he shakes it off into the fire. Snakes can't stop this guy. And that's just one story that we've got about him shipwrecked. He says he was shipwrecked three times. Can I ask you a question? Who wants to get back on the ship after it happens once? <laughs> it happened three times for this guy, and it wouldn't stop him. A night and a day I've been in the deep. That probably has to do with one of these shipwrecks. 24 hours in the water. Verse 26, I want you to see this one. In journeyings often, this word journeyings describes a walking journey. Remember I talked about Paul where it referred to Paul uh, three times he was beaten with rods? Let me show you why this was so important to Paul in Paul's life. He walked from Antioch, Pisidia to Iconium in Acts 13. Walked from Iconium to Lystra in Acts 14. Walked back from Lystra to Derby, and from Derby walked back to Lystra. And from Lystra, he walked back to Iconium, Acts chapter 14. From Iconium, he walked to Antioch, Pisidia. From Antioch, Pisidia, he walked to the whole region of Pamphylia, Acts 14. Then he walked all the way to Perga. For a brief period, Paul and his team traveled by ship. We've seen that's no picnic. To Antioch, which was Paul's home base. But then they walked to Phoenix and Samaria, Acts 15. From there, they walked to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, they walked back to Antioch, still in Acts 15. From Antioch, Paul walked through the regions of Syria and Cilicia. He walked back to the cities of Derbe and Lystra. Then he walked to Phrygia and walked through the regions of Galatia, Acts 16. After that, he walked to Mysia and then walked all the way down to Troas. After seeing a vision of a man in Macedonia calling to him for help in Acts 16, Paul took a ship from Troas. His ship ported in the city of Samothracia. But departed the next day to Neapolis. From there, Paul and his associates sailed to Philippi, a chief city in that part of Macedonia. From Philippi, Paul walked through Amphipolis and Apollonia. Then he walked to the city of Thessalonica. Acts 17. From Thessalonica, Paul walked to Berea. Paul took a ship from Berea to Athens in Acts 17. From Athens, he walked to Corinth in Acts 18. He sailed from Corinth to Syria. Then from Syria, he walked to Ephesus. Acts 18. From Ephesus, he sailed to Caesarea but from there he walked to Antioch, Acts 18. From Antioch, he walked all over the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, and then he walked along the upper coastlines to Ephesus in Acts 19. And Paul says, in journeyings often. In other words, Paul walked pretty much everywhere that he went. Now stop and think about the connection between what he's already told us. And what we see in the book of Acts about his ministry. Three times he was beaten with rods. In other words, the devil tried to cripple him three times. If the devil had been able to cripple Paul, where would he not have made it to? See, it's, it's laughable that some preachers today talk about Paul being a sickly person. It's laughable. To think that Paul was some kind of frail guy with some eye disease that's being led around by the hand from one place to another. Paul walked thousands of miles. And those are just the places we know about. That was just after Luke was with him. Thousands of miles. You remember the scripture in the Old Testament says, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel? Paul's feet were everything because it was the means of the spreading of the gospel. Next thing he says is in perils. By the way, the Greek word perils means extremely dangerous. There's another word you could use for just normal danger. This is extreme danger. In perils of waters, now this word waters is the word rivers. In other words, he's saying, I faced some real dangerous, extremely dangerous situations having to cross rivers. Folks, bridges were few and far between in the ancient world. So he says, I was in peril in river crossings, in perils, extreme danger of robbers. These are bandits that were known for plundering, wounding, and sometimes killing their victims. Now, think about how much Paul was on the road. He's traveling from one city to another through the very places where these robbers, these bandits are hiding out. And he says, I faced extreme danger. We have to assume that there were times where Paul was robbed. He mentions it. He next says, in extreme danger are perils by my own countrymen, these were the Jews who persecuted him, that he talks about being the thorn in his flesh. In perils by the heathen, these are the Gentiles, the idol worshipers. We know the situations that happened in a couple of the cities where idol worshipers raised riots against Paul and had him beaten and so forth. In perils in the city, Paul was led mostly by the Lord to the major population centers because that was the place where he could reach the most people. But that has within it an inherent set of circumstances that are different than in rural areas. I'm always amazed by what small-town pastors can get away with in their churches. They don't have any sign restrictions. They don't have any codes. They don't have any city regulations or ordinances about what you can do and how you can do it and so forth. He then mentions in perils of the wilderness. Now, the wilderness areas, this is probably where he's going from one place to another, has its own set of circumstances, robbers, wild beasts, and so forth. He said he faced extreme danger there. Then he mentions extreme dangers in the sea, meaning just normal sea travel. We've already talked about a little bit of that. Then he said in extreme dangers among false brethren. Now, he talks about this in Galatians chapter 2, that there were false brethren that came in privately, privily, to search out their liberty. We usually look at that as being people that pretend to be Christians, but they're not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the false brethren that he had to deal with were the people that pretended to agree with his doctrine, but they had an ulterior motive. They wanted to come in, and in the case of the Galatians, they wanted to come in and reimpose the law of Moses upon the church. So they pretended to go along with Paul's doctrine until they could find an opportunity, an opening to bring things back to Judaism. They were saved. They believed in Jesus, but they didn't believe in doing away with the law of Moses. And Paul talks about the extreme danger. These were the people that persecuted him. These were the ones that really turned out to be the thorn in his flesh. Next he says, in weariness and painfulness, this is hard to, to uh, speculate on because the word weariness is the same word in verse 23 where he talks about labors. Why would he talk about working hard twice? He must mean something else about it. Well, the fact that it's attached to, the word labors is attached to painfulness or what's translated painfulness leads us to imagine these saying that the hardest kind of physical work did take a toll on his body. In other words, he must be saying, now don't think that I had some supernatural power that you don't have to where the hard work that I undertook didn't have to take a physical toll on me. The word painfulness can be translated burnout, physical depletion of strength. In other words, he's saying the hard work that I engaged in had the same effect on me that it would have on you. Now, folks, please understand that none of this is a complaint. Paul is not complaining about any of this stuff. He's just being real. He's saying, I experience the same kind of stuff that you do. And if I can keep going, you can keep going. I face burnout, just like you face burnout. I face a lack of strength, just like you face a lack of strength. Of course, these things had a t- took a toll on my body. But that's why, in my opinion, that's why Romans eight eleven. And verses like that that Paul wrote to the church are so, so, so important. They're real to him. He wrote in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, if the same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you, he'll quicken your mortal body. You think Paul didn't have to be healed from having his feet beaten? You think there weren't things that Paul wasn't having to believe for as far as his physical well-being was concerned relative to the hard labor? Paul said he worked harder than we can imagine We know the story of Epaphroditus who worked himself almost to death for the sake of the ministry. But God had mercy on him. Well, what kept Paul going if Paul worked harder than Epaphroditus? Paul's believing every day to be a hooper conqueror. But he didn't let anything stop him. He goes on to say in watchings often... This is an interesting one to me because watchings means over, loss of sleep, staying awake overnight, all night, in defense of robbers or whatever else it might be, wild beasts or whatever it might be on his travels. How good would a person with a terrible eye disease be, good, be as far as keeping watch at night? It's laughable, folks, what the church claims about Paul. When his own words, his own writings to the church Disprove any possibility of it. In hunger and thirst, he's talking about lack of food and water. Now, we don't know if that would be that Paul got in places where there wasn't food and water, if it means that there were times where the robbers stole what he had for his journey. Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, I know how to live when I have a lot and when I don't have anything. I can do all things through Christ. In other words, I'm a hooper conqueror. Notice the next thing he says in fasting is often. Now, the difference between fasting and hunger is a choice. There were times where he didn't have any food, but notice he said he oftentimes went without food for spiritual purposes. Finally, he concludes the list with in cold and nakedness. Now, we don't know what that's referring to, But we have to imagine the times he'd been cold in prison, naked in prison. That's the way they threw people in prison without anything to cover themselves. We have to imagine the cold that would be involved in the 24 hours he spent in the middle of the ocean or the sea, shipwrecked and so forth. Maybe even had his clothing stolen from him by the bandits and the robbers. Beyond that, we don't really know. Then Paul goes on to say, "In the thing that, that he considers to be the worst, the thing that was daily upon him was the care of the churches. In other words, he suffered mentally. He suffered mental attacks. Now think about if you were Paul, think about how the devil would try to tell you that the work that you just did last year was of no value because of the Roman persecution or the Jews coming in and destroying the work or whatever the case might be. Think about how Paul would be tempted To think that what he's doing is not doing any good. Anybody ever had that thought? Anybody ever had the devil tell you what you're doing is a waste of time? Paul singles that out as the one thing that he dealt with every day. As I said before, there's not a hint of complaint about any of this stuff. Not one hint of complaint. Paul uses these things, this list is a badge of honor. He's saying, these are things that wouldn't stop me. Now, remember the context. He's saying, how does that measure up with the people that are selling you their great ministry? But these are the things that the devil threw at him that couldn't stop him. Finally, close with me. We'll close with this. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's start in verse 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. That's where we started. The light shined into darkness and the darkness couldn't overcome it. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. You're now the light of the world. The darkness can't overcome you. It can't subdue the light in you. has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Nobody knew that better than Paul. Nobody knew the aches and pains of daily life and the results of ministry more than he did. We have this treasure in earth and vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not us. What's he saying? He's saying God quickens the Holy Ghost in you, quickens your mortal body. Paul lived this stuff, folks. Paul didn't just preach it. He didn't just get sermons and send them out over the Internet. Don't you know Paul would have preferred to sit in one place with a TV studio (laughs) and cover the whole world at one time? But think, and I'm not putting anybody down that's doing that, If Paul was here today, he'd use every means available to him to reach the world. But think of the things Paul would not have learned about walking with God if it had been like that. You talk about learning faith for somebody with scars. Follow Paul's faith. We have this treasure in earth and vessels that the power, the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We've got trouble, but we don't let it stop us. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We wonder how we're going to make it too, but we don't get depressed about it. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. One translation says, knocked down, but not out. always verse 10 bearing about in the body the dying of the lord jesus he's got marks to show for it jesus still has the nail holes in his hand but paul still has the marks on his body or will have when his redeemed body is is resurrected i'm not sure how that works how does that work is he going to have the same scars if he has a choice he will Because, as I said, it's a badge of honor for the sacrifice he made for the Lord. Now, the stuff that's of the flesh, that are impurities of the flesh, we won't have those in heaven. But the marks that we have for the the sake of the Lord Jesus, there's a chance that you might still have those. Most people are safe on that score. Don't have anything to concern themselves about. But it's possible that Mark that Paul will bear the marks for eternity too. You decide. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. What's he saying? He's saying, folks, being a hooper conqueror means believing for the life of God to be made manifest in your flesh. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. He is saying, as clearly as he can say it, being saved, making Jesus the Lord of your life, is not only is not limited to spiritual benefits. He is saying very clearly, when you put together what he's saying here with the experiences that he identifies in chapter 11, he is saying so very clearly we see the life of God sustain and restore our flesh too. And the church argues about whether healing is in the atonement. You want me to tell you something, folks? If healing wasn't in the atonement, Jesus is still your healer. You know why? Because of the promises of God. This is the, the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. You remember what Jesus said about faith? Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Is whatsoever you desire include physical healing? Does whatsoever you de- desire include restoration or quickening from these things that Paul experienced? Then even if Jesus didn't pay the price for our sins and our sicknesses on the cross, the promises of God that says you can have what you believe for by faith would include physical healing. John 15. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Does what you will include physical healing? It does for the sick. Well, then according to the words of Jesus, he didn't say according because I'm paying for the price on the cross. He said if you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's a faith proposition. It's not just tied to the historical fact that Jesus bore your sins in his body. And took your stripes upon his back. That's not the only thing that there is. If healing was not in the atonement. The promises of God would still provide healing benefits. Because of the way that Jesus gave them to us. You think Paul didn't know that? These things are Paul's badges of honor. This list is a badge of honor. Because this is what the devil threw at Paul. And I can't help but think that Paul is kind of glad to tell him the story he wouldn't have normally he never would have never did to anybody else but to this group that has turned away from him because of these nobody guys that have come through to try to take their money from them he says they tell you they're great ministers have they done this have they done this have they done that have they done this other thing have they been shipwrecked have they been beaten with rods have they been in prison? This was a badge of honor for him. Yeah, each one of these things were things that the devil used to hinder him. But he never could stop him. Can he stop you? Nay, in all these things we are hooper conquerors. Through him that loved us. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. If you're going to be a hooper conqueror. That means we're going to have to take on the same attitude as Paul did. We may be hindered. We may be slowed down. We may be delayed. We may be inconvenienced. But nothing is going to stop us. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for who you've made us in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to be more than a conqueror. And we know for certain that that doesn't mean never attacked. Never hindered, never delayed. Never have a problem. Never fight a battle. But Father, because we're born of you, we overcome anything and everything in this world system. Anything and everything the devil uses or could possibly ever use to attack us, to steal the dream that you put in our heart. Those words that you've spoken to us that gave us purpose, We refuse to quit in Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. And the battles, the faith battles and the faith victories that we win, we'll use as a badge of honor just like Paul did. As a sign of your faithfulness. Proof of your goodness. And evidence. Proof that the darkness cannot conquer the light. Father, forgive us from the things that we've given up on. Rekindle those things that are in our heart and that were once big inside of us. Let them be big in us again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let us be of the mindset, Father, that the early church had, that the Apostle Paul had, that nothing is going to cause us to turn loose of the vision that the Lord has placed in our spirits. Nothing is going to make us turn loose of the power of God that the Bible says is within us. Nothing is going to make us turn back from the truth of your word. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but I preach me happy. Hallelujah! Let's all stand together Glory to God I'm amazed by Paul's list A hangnail will stop most Christians Modern day Christians What would it take to stop you? I hope you haven't come up on it yet And I hope that after today, maybe just a little bit, you've been strengthened with the resolve that you never will come up on it. That's the way the Lord wants us to be. You may have been knocked down like Paul, but not knocked out. It's not falling that causes a man to be unrighteous. The real tragedy is when he doesn't get back up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Lord, we love you. We worship you. You're so good to us, Lord. Your power is so great to sustain us. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Use me, Lord. I won't give up. I refuse to give in. I cannot be defeated because of the life of God within me. And I refuse to quit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for seeing us through. Even though now we may be hindered by the evil one, the victory is ours. He'll not stop us. In Jesus' name jesus name say it with me the lord is good and his mercy endures forever